Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Drunken PM Radio. You're probably listening to this through projectmanagement.com, so I'd like to thank them once again for being a sponsor of the podcast. Um, and you can find my podcast and a whole bunch of other great stuff at projectmanagement.com. I would like to thank my two guests, Michael Tibbert and Davo Panchel, whose name I've been mispronouncing for many years. Thank you guys both for joining me. Welcome. And we're going to talk about a question that I got from a student. And I want to explain before we get into this how the student and all of us are connected. So there was a guy in my class named Andrew. And after the class, Andrew sent me a question to use in a podcast and mentioned that he knows Michael. And I know Michael. And I know Michael through Double. And how do you guys know? Yes. Uh, we have a story past at every Agile conference. We did time together upstate. Yes. Right. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Nicola no, Chino. Uh, so I know Michael because of Michael, which is another interesting story. Because a friend of mine, Michael Tadev, worked with Michael Tipper. And uh, while they were working together, Michael Tadev uh, talked about me. And I had a chance to meet with Michael Tibbert, who is on the podcast right now. Uh, and we've met almost every Agile conference. And every Agile conference, we take a selfie, even before selfie was a thing. Yes. <laughs> Michael, I think yeah. I only, every time I see you, I think I'm drunk at a conference, it seems like. <laughs> a couple times, a few times. <laughs> Both times I've been drunk at conferences. Um, <laughs> All right. So before we get into Andrew's question, um, Michael, do you want to tell folks a little bit about the work that you do? And then Dabo will go to you after that. Sure. Okay. I, I'm, uh, I work for a company in Boston called Power Advocate, and I'm an internal coach and a scrum master. So we've uh, at Power Advocate, we've taken scrum outside of software development, and we're using it in other areas of our company, such as for analysis and um, our, we have teams of analysts that are scrum teams and we have, uh, our IT group that's scrum teams, our customer service group is scrum teams and we're moving into other parts of the company. And another part of our company is called client services and they deal with, uh, our external clients in the energy industry. We deal a lot with oil and gas customers and utility customers in the supply chain area. And we have been working on transforming our client services group into um, more of an agile group and some of the scrum teams because some of our clients are asking for our advice in helping them become more agile. Okay, cool. Thanks. And the reason that you sound like Don Corleone, just for the folks who are listening, is that you're recovering from the sickness. I'm yeah, I'm recovering from the flu and then had laryngitis, so bear with me. <laughs> Sorry, cool. So, Davo, what about you? Tell these people who you are. Uh, well, I'm me. Uh, I'm also the founder of Evolve Agility, and I was shaken to my core to learn that there's another website <laughs> that is completely misspelled, and uh, I have to figure out how I brand myself. But at the core of it, I, uh, I am really passionate about implementing Agile, helping organizations transform themselves into an agile mindset. And it's more to me about uh, the actual way of thinking about the way we work and how we treat people more humanly, if that's a word. Humanely to is a, a word. Humanely. For most humanely of us. is a word. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> English is my second language, so you have to excuse me on that one. But yes, definitely like a, a place where people can be creative and actually create new innovative products. That's at the core of what I want to be working at. And to do that, I've started my own company called Evolve Agility, spelled exactly like you think it is. <laughs> okay. Awesome. And you're also a certified Scrum coach and a certified Scrum trainer. Yes, I'm a certified enterprise coach, a certified Scrum trainer. And uh, I am also a full-time coach. So a lot of what I do is actual hands-on coaching in large organizations. And also I have my own training classes. So I try to keep that balance. Okay, cool. All right, thank you guys for doing that. So now I'm going to play the question um, for the folks that are listening. Here's the stuff that Andrew sent in. Hi, Dave. Andrew here. I took your Scrum Master class and your Product Owner class a couple of weeks ago. 
and I got a lot out of it. Thanks so much for everything you did for everyone in the class. After taking the class, I was thinking about how I could apply what I've learned to my organization and to all of our customers who are thinking about implementing Scrum teams in their supply chain organization. So what my question is for you, Dave, is what do you think is needed for an organization to transform, to develop an agile mindset across the organization and develop successful Scrum teams? I'd imagine that you know, new organizations have the benefit of not having a status quo to compare to, so they don't have to deal with change, so they can start with agile mindsets and they can start with Scrum teams from the get-go. But organizations that have been established and have been around for decades and even centuries have the challenge of having a traditional way of doing things. So they have to get over the change management and implementing and changing the way they think. It, it seems like a lot to do for an organization. So I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on what an organization that's established, what they should do. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in the question. Um, we're going to talk about supply chain. We're going to talk about the different aspects of how to try to help a company adopt an agile mindset. But the thing that I would like to start with, if you guys don't mind, is Andrew's made this assumption that if you start a company from scratch and you can just flip the switch and be agile on day one, that that's a lot easier. Do you agree with that? I Personally, I don't agree with that. Okay. I, you have... Oh, it's your we turn, have... Bobble. He weighed in already. He's done. Yeah, no. I... <laughs> he tapped out on that one pretty quick. <laughs> you want me to explain, Bobble? Um, my, my thought is you have years of unlearning to do. No matter where you've been, you were probably brought up in a command and control environment. So trying to unlearn some of that and to really focus on the customer, I, th I think it is, you can't flip the switch that easy. That's my thought, because you really right. have to think of the customer and think of the principles. That, that is so very true, and I have to go with Michael on this. I mean, the axis that we've chosen to divide is probably not the right axis, right? To, there, are, there are organizations that are completely brand new, and they don't know anything but Agile. At the same time, it is not it is not uncommon to find people in the organizations who are still waiting for the next command or the next approval. Well, and, and, and they're good. Sorry. It, it, and so to try to uh, to make a, a assertion that if your company is brand new, you are more likely to be agile than a company that is uh, a legacy company being around for a long time, that may not be uh, accurate. Yeah, I think that I think there's... I... Go ahead. I'm going to stop interrupting I... you until you're done. Okay. No, I, 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 I think a lot goes back to into how we think, like we find our own self-worth, right? There, there, is, there is a degree where we do want approval from other people and from our original conditioning, we have always, especially in the school system, sought some kind of approval or other from our peers or from our teachers. And if at no point we never grew up into actually valuing what we contribute and still looking for that approval from the outside, even though you've started a new company, you'll end up turning it into a command and control ship. Okay. So I, I would say, I mean, I think that if you're like a 100-year-old bank, there's going to be certain challenges you face. But if you're brand new, there's going to be other challenges. And I think uh -huh. there's lots of people that come in thinking like, oh, I already know Agile. I've been doing it for years. And then when you kind of level set with them, you find out they don't know Agile at all. Um, or they think they're Agile and they're not. So I think that, I mean, for Andrew, I think that you're going to have challenges no matter what kind of background you're coming from. Um I did want to comment on something that, that you mentioned, Michael. So I've had in class a lot, I've had a couple classes where I've had people that have never done waterfall, like younger people uh -huh. that have never had any command and control experience whatsoever, which is super weird. And I don't know how to deal with them at all. So I'm like, everything I'm trying to fix, you don't even have yet. Like, go get that sickness and then come back. Um, but maybe that's a sign that things are shifting a little bit. And maybe that will make it easier to cut things along those lines. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Dave, because we deal with a lot of, at Power Advocate, we hire a lot of co-op students, 
and computer science. And some of them have not been in a command and control structure at all. So they adapt to agile very quickly, I've, I've found. Because again, when you say waterfall, or you say, they like, what does that mean? So yeah. it's just, and I'm get like, off what, my lawn. What, what does waterfall mean? You know? <laughs> and, uh, but the whole um, self-organization, they're starting to teach some of that in, in some of the colleges and universities and some of the people that are coming out of school now are already have some of that mindset, are starting to get some of that mindset, which is good. It's just, I think it's just the older, older generation of the people that have been in the business for a while that have that command and control mindset yeah. built in yeah cool all right so um so let's talk about the mindset thing so Dawa, a minute ago you mentioned that people are looking for approval and stuff um let's say it is a, a, like a, a company that's been around for a while what kind of steps right. do you guys take when you walk in the door to try to bring that mindset to the people that are in a more traditional environment or what or what pointers can we offer andrew to help him kind of get going with that I, I, one of the, and I'm trying to relate something that just happened with me today is the desire to intervene, especially when you are in a hierarchical superior position. And that superiority often comes in hierarchical, hierarchical organizations through the status or the title that has been afforded to you, right? And oftentimes people are puzzled by the sheer fact that if you don't intervene, you get results that are much better than, than whatever you could think that they are possible of doing. So it's sort of a, a give and take at the same time, right? You want to build enough of a, of a, of a safe place or buffer or a sandbox where the team members who've been used to giving and told exactly what to do are now all of a sudden free to actually think for themselves and make decisions and do the work. And, and the you have to get time, people to trust them, the people at the top of the hierarchy to trust them to make good decisions. Right. You, either, right. either you want the people at the top of the hierarchy to trust them, or you need a very expert agile coach who can distract them long enough so they realize that they are not nearly needed in every <laughs> single decision that's been happening. <laughs> the Davil, you said something very interesting that, that I think contributes to helping that and that's creating a safe place right that's to me very important because if it starts with a team you need this that safe place so they can experiment and they can really take control of what they're doing so when you guys go into traditional organizations like i can put on my traditional pm hat and think oh here they come with their safety conversations again um right how how would you define safety and how do you explain that to somebody who is more traditional and old school who doesn't you know who believes in that they who got their big office through fear and intimidation right i i never talk about safety okay. i actually i i focus more on creating it and then pointing it out later rather than getting into uh getting into a conversation about safety and why because as soon as you open up the conversation of safety in front of a hierarchical leader, you are essentially implying that they are the ones who are creating an unsafe. When in their minds, they are not that way. They, they are probably, I mean, the like no one carries a self-image uh, of being completely destructive and disruptive to their own, to their own people, right. right? But at the same time, there is a lack of awareness in knowing what do I do that actually impacts my people differently? And the only way to find that out is to force them into what Toyota would call it Gemba state or, or in the go see state where you practically draw a circle and you say you stand there and the best you can do right now is not say anything and not judge anything. Just sit and watch. Okay. So how does that help with the creating of a safety space if I'm sitting and watching? It, it opens up room for the team to discover its own behaviors. Because you see, it's, it's, it's not a single one directional flow. So for example, when you have people who are always used to being told what to do, 
as soon as you have a, let's say, a, a scrum kickoff or wh whatever, and you tell them you're self-organized, the first thing they're going to look for is someone to self-organize them, right. which is quite a <laughs> right. Right? Which is which is quite an oxymoron. So for them to realize that self-organization actually means that now you kind of have to decide for yourself, test it with your own peers, and no, the principal is not going to come in and tell you how to do things differently. So all of that requires that the very first step is some amount of room for the team to try and experiment with its own, with its own ideas. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I agree on that. I, like, uh, oh, I don't talk about safe space, but safe space or things like that. But sometimes it's just breaking a norm, being able to say, okay, see this whiteboard? We're going to change how this is used or I'm going to put these big sheets on the wall and we're going to write on them. And it's just stuff that they haven't done before and that they're able to do. And then no one says, don't do that. It gets to me. It's it gets them thinking that oh, this is this is cool. We can do stuff. We can we can do this stuff. We have the freedom to do this stuff. So you're going to yeah. be teaching them like different games, kind of shocking them out of it with play, basically. No, not not really, because I mean, play is good to kind of get the energy back up, and a lot of it is basically relying on where does the team have energy. Most people, when they are given this freedom, they already have something that they are interested in. And, and the subtle aspect of all of this is the manager thinks that they are actually making things happen when in reality there is this soft under undercurrent. And this is true in every society, right? There's always a counterculture or under under underground culture. That applies even in organizations where there is this underculture of people and relationships that go beyond uh, the racy chart and the responsibilities that are as understood by the organization. In other words, there are people who already cooperate. There are people who already self-organize. There are people who already know how to work with each other. They may be formed into cliques or a little subgroups, but as soon as you put seven people together, you can immediately see like two or three people gravitating towards each other. Now, the question is not so much about how do I get the manager to back off, but more about how do I get these clicks to like to start liking each other so they can turn into a team. Okay. So, for, so find evidence of what you're actually looking for them to become and then try to amplify that or help them amplify it themselves. Yes, definitely. And, and try to dampen some aspects which are also dysfunctional, right? And it's, it's sort of like the sound of one hand clap. We, the, there is no none. It's basically the yearning for the other one. So, so when you have command and control managers, you also have people who are used to that kind of uh, a system, because they can they have a way to fall back and say, "Well, you never told me what to do, so I'm I'm doing something else." Okay. So I want to ask you guys both a question about this, and this was not planned. It just kind of popped into my head. Um, when I've been in very command and control environments, and this is based on what you just said, Dawal, there there are the the, bot, the managers or whatever that are very like directive and loud, and they just take mm -hmm. the room. But when they're there, that also creates those kind of middle level managers who are afraid of doing anything, who don't want to make right. any decisions on their own, who you giving them power. That's like they don't they want the outcome of the power, but they don't want to have the risk of wielding it. Um, if you're working with somebody like that, because you're going to have both of these kinds of people in a traditional organization, how do you help the more timid management level to find their way to that agile mindset? Because that's different than teams. I mean, you can go to the seven people and say, yeah, let's do creative stuff. Exactly. But if you go to the manager and say, here's seven creative people, let them do what they want to do and figure out some cool stuff, that manager is still going to be afraid of the hammer coming down on them. So right. how, do you, how do you get that person to trust their team and to trust the organization to not smack them down? You know the parable of the watermelons and the scarecrow, right? <laughs> Sorry. Every time you tell a parable, I get confused. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't All right. know that. So, so, uh, so there's a lazy farmer, right? He chances upon a pumpkin and he makes a very mean scarecrow, like similar to how you make it in the Halloween, sticks it up in the middle of a barren land, 
and then walks away because uh, the organizational leader or the person believes in the whole management by fear and amygdala, right? Wh whatever that does to it. Eventually, after some time, he finds uh, some produce. It turns out to be watermelons, all bunch of green, but red on the inside. So what ends up happening in, in large organizations is uh, by managing through fear, you have a scarecrow manager in the middle of everything. And the team's all pretending that everything is going really, really well. But in reality, it's it's all bloody red. And I love watermelons, but so that's why it's a parable, right? So, <laughs> so what we end up with is, is people who are not feeling safe, but they pretend to be safe. You end up with middle management that is nothing but a facade. And you end up with a, a leader that is absent or a gardener that is absent. Okay. So, so how would you put Scarecrow back into a position where they actually do something? And and to to, to that basic question, right? It's it's difficult at times. It, it, it is. It is. It is quite a challenge. But the best you can do is either help them see the value in the melons, or help them realize that what they are doing by the simple presence is protecting the rest of the melons from all the other forces that will come and peck on it okay michael do you have a response to that <laughs> <laughs> i'm still trying to figure out the watermelon um, yeah me too <laughs> sorry about that we can cut that out no <laughs> no we're leaving that in. <laughs> that's a that's a tough one dave because you know dealing with that i think you can never get the middle manager totally comfortable with trust in the team so okay. you just have to what i have done and again i'm just in a in a private organization but i've believe it or not faced this i have just had the middle manager give up little things say why don't you let the team figure out their work for the next two days and that takes it off your plate because a lot of times i've seen the middle manager uh, wants to, again, if it's command and control, wants yeah. to figure out the work schedule and all that. And at times I've said, let them figure it out for two days, see what happens and see what that does to your, to your work schedule. Okay. And slowly, I, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know, take out take some of the stuff off the middle manager, give it to the team piece by piece, piece and it's shown the middle manager gets to free up to do other things. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it totally backfires. But do, do you think the that there's a way to create something in the organization that will help that more timid manager, not just trust the team, but trust the organization to not, you know, hammer them down for for trying because it seems that when i've run across those people they always just seem kind of beat down and victimized and part of what i'm always trying to do is to teach them to stop letting themselves be the victim and and to to just grab anything i mean in the same way that you're saying let the team make a decision i guess i want them to start make taking more risks on their own and how, how do you create that environment where they're comfortable doing that you and know, is that I, one more question? And is that even part of an agile mindset, or is that just more of a leadership thing? That's a great question. I think it's a little of both because I do know. Uh, my, I mean, I'm really lucky where I work because my leadership accepts and supports agile. And if as many teams as want to become agile teams, it's cool, and there's no ramifications if something goes wrong people realize that we don't always get all the work done that we plan we understand things come up as long as we're transparent so we have that culture but still you have individuals that just don't want to accept it yeah or don't trust it you know and again um i i don't know if it's it all comes down again to the individual, I think. Okay. 
I, that's my thought. I, I don't know how to crack that nut. I've been trying, I've been struggling with that. Right. I mean, perhaps a different way of looking at it, right? We, we assume that every single organization on the planet exists to serve, and there are these party lines that get traded off. We exist to maximize shareholder value. We exist uh, to serve our customers. We exist uh, to be innovative and creative. The best thing to do is to not listen to what the system is telling you about itself. The best thing to do is to actually look at the way the system is actually behaving. Now, in most organizations, we end up with these giant hierarchicals with the middle layer that gets squished is because they are the buffer. They are the ones who are compensating for the stated goal versus the actual goal of the system. And it's extremely hard for anyone in the organization to even know what the system's goal is until it kind of reveals itself. What I, what I mean by that, and this is a very classic example that's used by Donald Meadows uh, in her book uh, called Thinking in Systems, a Primer. And she uses a, a block of wood and then she uses a slinky and she holds both of them together at the same time. Now, they both behave exactly the same until you lose your grip on the slinky and the slinky does its thing. So what is essentially happening is when you have these large organizations, they are trying to exhibit the behavior that they are prompted to right now, but there is a lot of potential or latent behavior that is still hidden. Agile is one of the ways that is attempted today to try to perturb this existing status quo and figure out like what is the system really trying to do and in our history over the last 20 30 years there's been a wave of movement after another there's the total quality movement the six sigma and you you can name all of these just coming out left and right, but at the core, the organization has still never changed. It has kind of shifted a bit, but it has not technically really changed. So to assume that Agile will bring some kind of salvation is probably really, really wrong. Where it's really needed is to understand like what are we really, what, what kind of a system are we really in? And the only way to understand that is to look at people who are overcompensating for deficiencies in other areas of the organization. So at some level, you see uh, middle managers, uh, like you described, Dave, uh, as timid or not so sure or bearing down on their teams. They're probably compensating from some degree of pressure that is coming at them that either they can't hold back anymore and they pass it down to the teams or there is pressure from the bottom-up pressure, which they can't take it back to the leadership. So there is no resolution of this tension, right? And 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 you find uh, these behaviors uh, that you would, like no one ever grew up saying, I'm going to be a timid manager who is never going to do anything. I'm going to be a life. victim. <laughs> right. Like no one ever thought like when they were 10 years old. Well, nobody ever thought be... they were going to be a project manager either. Right, right, right. So, I mean, they, they might have been, you, you never know. No. But like, no no one ever wants to be disenfranchised and completely, uh, like, not at a place where marginalized. I right? want to no not matter. Right. <laughs> that's true. Well, that, that that's, a, that's a, I think, an important thing. And when people are there, you got to help them dig out of it somehow. We'll believe right. in the possibility of not being that in that role. Um. All right, so I want to try to shift a little bit. I've, I've got two more questions I want to ask you guys before we have to have to go. Um, with this transformation transformation work, like where do you, knowing that Andrew's working in a pretty traditional environment, and, and Michael, I know you've worked with Andrew, which we'll talk about that in a second, but um, where do you recommend people start? Do you start at the top? And I had somebody ask me this in class today. Start at the top, start in the middle, start at the bottom. Well, I, I personally think if you don't get buy-in from the top, is it really going to succeed? Um, I, uh, I'm just from my experience, and again, I'm with a company. You guys have been out there dealing with various companies, but I know I'm the success that I've experienced or that I've seen in my company would not have happened 
if it the top did not accept it and allowed the people doing the work to experiment and to try this. So I think myself, I think it's both. You need the top to really say, okay, we're going to try something different and we accept it and we'll give it some time and the people doing the work, they need to be energized and excited to try this. That's from my small experience. That's what I think. Okay. Yeah. How long have you been at Power Advocate? A long time, right? 10 years. Okay. So that's a good and chunk of time. We've been doing Menagerie for eight. Okay. And you were there during the transformation, right? Yes. I remember talking about that before. Okay. Cool. Um, Dabo, what do you, what do you think? Um, I, I tend to slightly differ, right? And Michael, uh, the little bit of story that I know from, from our conversations was your first scrum team started in a basement somewhere, correct? Yes, that's correct. And, and, and this was a team that practically had to hide itself from the organizational antibodies because no one would understand you? Um, no, just because there was, that was the place where we had space. Right, sure. And basement is a fantastic place have, to start out. We could have the team co-located, so that was that was the the. That's why we were there. Right. So part of me, right, and and if I were to give you like a very simple answer, if that's the only answer I could give, I would completely align with Michael. I'd say yes, totally. You need top-down buy-in. You need bottom-up. And what ends up happening is the middle management gets squeezed into trying to live up to what the bottom up is asking for and what the top down expectations are. At the same time, I find uh, this, uh, this all or nothing statement around either we transform or we don't, either we transform as a whole company or, or, or we don't, uh, a little bit of uh, challenging to, to grasp with because there are parts of the organization that need to be able to do stuff very efficiently. Uh -huh. You would not want someone to say, oh yeah, your uh, uh, laptop is need to be provisioned. It's in the backlog, your item number 255. You know what I mean, right? You mm -hmm. don't want them to hold the daily standup around like routine stuff that is already figured out. And it's part of, for lack of a better word, call your organizational supply chain. You go to the IT help center, you want your laptop so you can get to work. So there is a level or a spectrum where on one side, you are doing completely exploratory work, trying out hypotheses, dealing with uncertainty. While on the other, if someone doesn't actually like do the basics, like give you an access card so you can use the restroom inside the building, you would call that as deviance. Right. So within an organization, there are a variety of layers of work that happens. There is work that is happening that is routine, mundane. It, it should happen at a pace where this, which is understandable. And, and it delivers you what you need so you can actually get to doing the cool stuff. Right. It's almost like having some ability to, to manage the, the regular day to day if that is in control, then I can now go do some of the cool stuff that I really want to do. So from an organizational perspective, asking everybody to be agile is probably not the right thing. Well, hold on. I want to go too. Can I go? All right. Yes, <laughs> so, sure. First of all, <laughs> I want to point out that the agile coach, the most seasoned agile coach on the call just advocated for bimodal, which is shocking. Um, but I, so I feel like you need to have engagement at the team level and engagement at senior management level, but I'm worried about the middle and specifically I worry about the PMO. I think if you don't find work for them to do to support the connection between the top and the bottom, then the whole thing's going to just get crushed like a spinal disc that's got too much pressure on it. Um, so this, this might sound naive, but I think it, doesn't matter as long as everyone realizes who their customer is and what the value they need to bring to their customer. 
whether it's someone in a help desk, whether it's the PMO, whether it's a developer. I mean, isn't that what Agile is about? Trying to provide value to your customer. That's a bigger question. I think we should kick that one to Davo. I think (laughs) if people understand that, it doesn't matter what you call it. I think there would be some benefit that everyone was working towards providing value to their customer. So not being so hung up on whether you're agile or not, but just taking care of the customer. That's And hopefully treating the people that work at your company like human beings at the same time. That's my naive thought, but... Yeah, I I would totally agree with that. Okay. And, And... I, I had no idea I walked into bimodal trap. Not that I... I it's not I, a trap. I, I think bimodal is awesome. I just can't believe you spoke up for it. <laughs> no, I no, I don't know what bimodal is, to be honest. I don't pay oh. attention. So, so Gartner, about two, two or three years ago, came up with this idea that you can have a, like a traditional approach, which is right. called mode one, and you can have an mm-hmm. agile approach, which is called mode two, Coexist yes. peacefully in the same yeah, organization. Yeah, that's where I left. That's what no, that's where I left the article because I now remember the Gartner article. No, about but it. but for it to work, you've got it. Your mode one is not traditional waterfall project management. You've got to develop a version of mode one that is built to live with agile. So it's not just we get to be waterfall and agile together. It's not a floor wax and a dessert topping. You've got to have a brand new way of approaching the keep the lights on stuff that is mm-hmm. built to live alongside and not interfere with an agile approach or a more innovative right. approach. It's not specifically agile, but just the whole idea of, of innovation. So. so it's kind of like a hedging strategy, right? We keep doing whatever we are doing and then we dip our toe into the other side. Well, a you bit. were saying that there's some things that are better. It makes more sense to do them in a traditional model. And that's the, what this is arguing for too, like like getting your your key card and you know provisioning equipment. I mean, if that's a repeatable process, you don't need maybe you don't need tons of innovation there where you do need it more in other places. So how do you have an environment that's not in conflict because of those two things living together? That's the idea, right? And, I, and yeah, and 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 I think like this is, and I, I want to tie it back to the whole notion of supply chain, right? I think that's a misconception because when I hear the word traditional, I, I hear a hierarchical command and control group of people. I also hear a separation of uh, people who figure out how to do the work versus the people who actually do the work. I also hear this kind of uh, uh, dehumanization of work that is, in my mind, associated with, with traditional approaches, right? And I, I see a lot of dysfunctions even in that, like getting a key card and you go into any large company, you get requisitioned for providing feedback because you waited 20 minutes in line just to ask whether you can have a USB stick in your company. So you can see how the very simple things that could have been addressed much, much better with the human touch get totally marginalized simply because they need to prove that the machinistic aspect of their work is actually valuable and useful. And the only way they can do that is by capturing the amount of tickets that come in and the amount of satisfied customers that walk out, right? So this this, this kind of, I mean, that's not what I intended to say. Uh, I do feel like there is a lot of, lot of complexity even doing this basic simple stuff. But it needs to be balanced in in terms of recognizing that when we serve our customers, these are the end customers who actually pay the bills or the teams that we support. We are actually doing it because we like to do that kind of work. Uh-huh. So I want right? to comment on one thing. I feel like, I mean, I don't disagree with anything that you said, but I think that the bureaucracy that got put in place got put in place with the best of intention. They were trying to control risk. They were trying to control things that were out of control or that weren't visible or that they didn't understand. And that was the only answer they could come up with at the time. I think the dysfunction has grown to the point where like Agile's a response to that sickness. But I don't think anybody intends, just like nobody intends to be a victimized middle manager, nobody intends to grow up and be this tyrannical, you know, boss. Or a company doesn't aspire to that. 
right. and, and again, we don't, I don't think anyone aspires to just ignore people and just do their job like robots, um, which I think bureaucracy creates creates that at times. Which but they make it, I, they make that a safer thing to do than to take the risk. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Bureaucracy has a safety bubble in and of itself. Yeah. And and again, it, I don't think there's anything wrong with bureaucracy at times. What I think the problem, in my opinion, my opinion is people lose sight of their customer, what they value they're supposed to provide their, their customer. I've spent the past year trying to instill just that one concept into a lot of people so that right. they get it. That, you know, you go in and you say, who's your customer? Some people don't even know who their customer is, you know, and get them to think who the customers, what value are you providing? Getting them to think like that. And I, I believe you could have any system you want as long as you have the customer focused on the customer and you're delivering the customer the value that the customer needs. Right, right. And and I mean this is a lot more complex, you know, Michael, because like if I were to just look at a very simple, like we can all agree that there are large corporations who have preferred vendors, right? Right. Right. So why do they have preferred vendors, even though they have a, a, a pool of talent that they can tap into, but they choose to still work through a set of preferred vendors? Now, you, you would wonder that the reason they want to procure from their preferred vendors is because they provide the highest quality. But that is not the whole story, right? Because at the same time, they provide, the preferred vendors provide enough of a cash flow buffer that if the parent company is unable to pay the vendor, the vendor is not likely to go bankrupt in the process, mm -hmm. right? So so what I'm, what I'm saying is there are so many different forces at play that this focus on the customer can get easily lost. Mm -hmm. Now, it, 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 in a very ideal situation, you would say what is right for the customer is right for you. But what is right for the customer now is probably the exactly wrong thing for you right now. Because if you go out of business because you did the right thing for your customer and your vendor sued you because you, did, you forgot to pay them on net 30, net 45, whatever you have, then you are in much bigger trouble than working with a vendor who is willing to look the other way, knowing that you're gonna pay them one way or the other, but they will compensate for that by providing lower quality supplies or products to you. And, and that's, where, that's where I was trying to get to is in terms of the system knowing its own goal, which is very hard for, for us to know because every organization tries to claim that they have a, a stated goal, which is exactly the same as how the system is behaving. But at the same time, the actual behavior is totally different than what, what people claim they're trying to do. And, 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 a, and a lot of it is just recognizing that this dichotomy or this difference exists, not out of malfeasance or, or out of some innate desire to cheat somebody, but recognizing that when you have multiple actors playing into this, there is going to be a emergent behavior in which I think Agile has tried to bring awareness to, right? For, for a lot of time, when people assume that there is the one mind that tells people what to do and then stuff happens. But in reality, the one mind tells people something, they interpret what they want to interpret and something else happens and the one mind justifies whatever happened using clever words. Okay. Okay. All right, so I got one more question for you guys. I want to go back to the supply chain thing. So that was something that threw me a little bit because I've never worked directly with a supply chain organization. So how does how is that a factor? And, and Michael, you you know Andrew, you worked with him on some of this stuff. So how does that impact all of this? And or does it not impact it? I don't think it impacts myself. I don't think it impacts it. Um, it is. A in a hierarchy, it is a process, and it is a process that is segmented into different departments and different groups. 
And really, it's just getting those groups together in a team, having the goal, and trying to, to meet the goal more effectively. Um, supply chain is nothing, nothing different. It could be anything. Um, it's just getting people from cross, cross-functional people to teams together and being able to, to be able to put out a request for a proposal, getting all of these um, engineered parts together, getting all this stuff together, doing all this research. So supply chain is, is just the process. Okay. It's, it's, not, it's nothing different than if we had a big development project, software development project that required UI and, and database and a lot of t- testers and all of that. We would put together a cross-functional team to do certain components, right? And deliver those on some type of schedule. With supply chain, it was, from what I observed, it was exactly the same thing. Okay. All right, Dal, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, a lot. How, how, how much should I pack it into? Maybe two minutes? Yeah. Sure, two minutes. Go. All right. So in the 90s, supply chain was the biggest problem ever, and it was always treated as an analytical problem. What it essentially meant was, how can I get the suppliers? What are the logistics that I need to figure out? And then it bubbled up into how do I manage my finances and so on and so forth, right? So the problem was essentially you have America, which is primarily a consumer-oriented society. Everyone from the politicians to to your preacher tells you that you should buy stuff. So now, today, this analytical chain needs to turn into a network. And that is one of the fundamental shifts that is happening in the supply chain universe, because the fact that you can, you can get a known quality because of the emergence of standards in a lot of, like you can buy a USB from your local gas station and trust that it'll work and it'll fit into your $2,000 Mac itself is, is, is a testament to the emergence of the people in the industry coming and finding agreement on some standards so even someone in some other country can make something for super cheap. So to the next level of optimization that needs to happen at the supply chain level is not just figuring out how do I get at the lowest cost with the lowest lead time, but more in terms of how do I tap into a network which is more fluid than a very strict analytical static network. Because these static networks, they always fail because they are always going to face some issue or the other. And the idea of pulling a cross-functional team that can solve the supply chain design problems on the fly is far more lucrative, right, than just doing software development. Because at the end of the day, no matter what you do, you have to provide a tangible product in the hand of your end users. So far more lucrative, but also far more complex to get to. It's it's yes. a safer, easier bet. Yes, it's going to put you in in you know a very uncomfortable, twisted up position. But to do it the old way, they know how they know that pain. It's a comfortable pain. You're talking about something that is like an innovation center mixed with supply chain, which would be amazing, but right, not easy. Yeah, and, and guess what? You don't get money for doing easy stuff. Okay. So you so right. you're you're so, making the argument that if they don't figure this out, somebody's going to come drink their milkshake at some point. They're going to get yeah, Ubered out of yeah. business. Basically. Yes, I mean the fashion industry got eaten out of their milkshake a long time ago by Zara. Okay. Right. So so we're just beginning. We are probably even like at the very naive. Like if I were to put it as a child, agile is probably just five months old. Okay. It's not even figured out how to walk yet because the application of the what Agile has really done is it's brought this awareness and a mental model into the into into different organizations that yes things emerge and it is it is to be expected yes there are networks yes there are cross functional teams that may not be as competent uh, in their individual skill sets but collectively they are far more powerful than like 10 PhDs who won Nobel prizes okay so 
I want to try to find a way to kind of bring it back a little bit. So I don't know, Andrew, if any of this has helped you at all. Um, hopefully it's given you some stuff to think about. Do you guys have any parting words of advice for him before we do the closeout bit? <laughs> Total <laughs> crickets. Okay. We've been talking. We've been talking for over an hour, so I think yeah. we're, we're probably we're kind of out. out. We're tapped out. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> Andrew, I hope this was helpful for you. And this was—I I really enjoyed the conversation. I thought it was great. It totally. Don't understand the watermelon thing at all, but the rest of it was really cool. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> no, don't, I, don't. You'll have to tell me that again, Donald, so I can remember it next time. No, I'm going to put a LinkedIn post tonight because it's almost like the, the parable was all totally made up, uh, but it's an article. I'm going to post it on LinkedIn. I'm going to share it with you. And, and I'll put it in the uh, podcast I, notes. Yeah. Yes, please do. I, uh Maybe uh, I wish there was a thumbs down because I mean I would love to get negative feedback on it. Well, there. Uh, I'll, I, if I, there's a way to give you a thumbs down, I totally will. Um, yeah, so, so Davo, if people want to get in touch with you, can you talk about the best way to do that? And also, I know you got some stuff coming up, so if you want to mention that, have at it as well. Plug it away. So I've I've got a talk at the Agile Houston. I live in Houston uh, at the Agile Houston uh, conference on April twenty first. I'm talking about wormholes to product innovation. And uh, I also do my Scrum Master certification classes and product owner certification classes. The next one is in March 22 and 23. A way to get in touch with me is to look for Tavil Panchal. There's only one of me on LinkedIn. There are quite a few, but you'll know you, you're, you're, you're on my profile. And I'll and, put your uh, Twitter in the, in the show notes as well if people want to hit you up there. Yeah, totally. I I am yet to build my website, which uh, Dave totally put a fire <laughs> under me. Uh, so it'll be up in the next two weeks. All right, cool. Two weeks? I figured you'd get it up tomorrow, Davo. Yeah, where's your innovation, man? Uh, no, I can totally put up a WordPress site. <laughs> I, you might just make me work all night tonight. <laughs> all right. So, Michael, what about you? Um, you can follow me on Twitter, MF Tibbert, and I could be... You can find me on LinkedIn, Michael Tibbert. Um, I have no speaking engagements coming up. I just had one at a what's called the Hack Bean Pot for a lot of college students a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Um, but and that, that's I'm not as active as as my friend Davo there though. <laughs> well, you know, maybe he should slow down and build a website. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, this is really cool. Thank you very much. So, and if anybody's listening, if you have um, questions you'd like answered on the podcast, just send me an email. Um, I'll include my, my link in the show notes. And thank you very much for listening, guys. Thanks for taking time out of your evening. Thanks, thank you. Dave. Thanks, Dave. It was fun. For, for the record, I, I, I skipped my Barcelona and Chelsea game just to be on this podcast. <laughs> which, we, which we all appreciate. Cool. This is, guys, this was awesome. Thank you. For this was fun. This was Thank really you, fun. guys. Yeah. <laughs>